Well, good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Yes. Hope you had a good night last night. I thought that we would begin with a meditation, but first, uh, uh, does anybody have any questions? I mean, we'll just do another uh, non-guided silent meditation, 30 minutes, applying the things that we've talked about. Yes? I have a question about this figure. Yes. Uh, is this Uh, between the stage nine, ten, what what's the the uh, the belt? Uh, what's at the a back? Uh, the the belt, the the guy flying with something. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, now he's coursing in the deep Prajnaparamita. <laughs> <laughs> uh, this this. Uh, what what it actually is uh, representing is that now he's he's achieved uh, by stage nine he's achieved all of the five characteristics of samatha, and so he is uh, in, in essence you might I think the the body is uh, seated on the ground, but but the mind is yeah there's nothing wrong with saying. Coursing in the deep Prajnaparamita. It's a <laughs> okay. And what about the the last stage of the flame? The very last one. Okay. Um, this is uh, what the sword there represents: the sword of wisdom. And uh, these ribbon-like structures are meant to indicate the the uh, our, our bondage to the illusion of uh, of self and to craving and so forth. And so this is the the person who has reached stage ten, and by some fluke hasn't already achieved awakening, uh, which in my experience is is pretty unusual. But this person would have the mind as perfectly suited for insight and awakening, and so he is. Uh, uh, so now he is riding his elephant wielding the sword of knowledge and, and, and severing the bonds that keep him tied to samsara. Now, it could even be somebody who's achieved first path or second path or third path and is is doing the same thing to achieve the higher path. Um, yeah, maybe... Anyway, that's what he represents. is somebody with the power of samatha who is uh, advancing... Uh, through the higher path. Okay. Right. So, so it's not the because uh, earlier stages they represent effort. So that by that one, uh, the last one is not the same meaning. Well, not not the same meaning. That would be the um, uh, that, in, in that case, it's representing the energy that accompanies the investigation uh, in uh, the uh, seven factors of enlightenment. Are you familiar with seven factors of enlightenment? No. No. Okay. Well, um, the the first five of them are uh, uh, stable attention, powerful mindfulness, uh, joy, tranquility, and equanimity. In other words, shamatha. The last two are uh, uh, energetic uh, or, or dedicated or, or in, in intense. Of investigation, so they are the energy and the investigation that leads to insight. 
And uh, those are the, those of the seven factors of enlightenment. Those are the two insight factors. So. Okay. Right. Great. I have yeah. a last request. Uh, or like, uh, when you do the meditation, can you, uh, for the first few minutes, can you give some give us some instruction for the beginners? Like, if if you give meditation instruction to for the beginner. Okay. Um, is anybody here that wasn't here yesterday? Good. Okay. I'll tell you what I'll do. In, um, in the chapter on stage one in the book, I present something which I think you'll find extremely valuable. It's a four-step uh, transition from ordinary daily consciousness to, uh, to meditative focus on an object. And... Uh, I'll guide you rather briefly through that as a part of this meditation. Okay? All right. So close your eyes once you're comfortable. And the first step is to become fully present. Well, thank you for that. So, uh, questions about meditation practice. And I'd like us to hold the other questions to the next part of today's session. So, I think the first hand was back there by the pillar. And the first two hands were, so the, uh, the young lady and then the gentleman next to her and then, and then the gentleman in front of the pillar. Yeah. Um, thank you. Um, my question is about um, the role of noting um, and how that could or might not be helpful and the risk being that it's distracting. And the which that it's? The, the potential benefit being that it can help steer you back, like let you know that something isn't uh, your meditation object, mm-hmm. um, but the risk being that uh, it can be distracting and yeah. it's like a thought. So that's sticky. right. Yeah. Uh, noting, yeah, noting is a beneficial practice because uh, it does several different things. One is your distractions are usually in the form of thoughts and uh, it's a function of attention and uh, the thinking of the thought is a completely different mental process than the generating of an appropriate label whether you, whether it's a verbal label or not the labeling and categorization process is a different mental process so you actually interrupt the thought when you label it. And that's why in uh, various meditation practices that use noting, this is a way of, uh, one way of letting go of a strong distraction is you just keep labeling it until it, it, it goes away because you can't, you can't label and think at the same time, think that thought. Um, 
The other purpose that it serves is that it helps uh, to recognize when you realize that the same thought or the same category of thoughts are uh, serving as strong distractions. When you notice that repeatedly, uh, even if you, even if the label itself is very simple, like thinking, uh, when you are labeling it as thinking, you also are recognizing the category that it belongs to. This will have the effect of making your peripheral awareness sensitized to that particular thought, and therefore it will uh, become less likely to capture your attention. You'll be more likely to recognize that it has arisen in uh, peripheral awareness, and you're less likely to be captured by it. Uh, The other advantage of noting and labeling is that you're actually uh, are reinforcing and developing stronger peripheral awareness. So if, for example, those of you that have done noting practice like the Mahasi style practice where you focus your attention on the rise and fall of the abdomen and a strong, you recognize the presence of a strong distraction or your attention is captured by a strong distraction, um, you label it and then you return to uh, the rise and fall of the abdomen. Um, what you're actually doing is you're developing strong peripheral awareness that's going to recognize those distractions and minimize them. And that's how, in the progress of insight, you eventually reach the stage of arising and passing away where you have very stable concentration, uh, not as stable as if you were doing a samatha practice, but stable enough that you can observe the arising and passing away of phenomenon. Um, so, so those are the benefits of labeling. The danger of labeling is uh, that it can become a form of thinking and a distraction in itself. And the way to overcome that is to keep your labels very, very simple. Um, uh, you know, uh, thinking, hearing, you know, can be as simple as that. could be a little more complex than that uh, if it works for you. Uh, you could label what you were thinking about, like like lunch or argument or um, pay my rent or whatever like that. Uh, Thinking about rent, you know. But the danger is that you get into this place, uh, and and this happens a lot with people who are introduced to this practice, and usually they're not given a lot of instruction. They said, label the distraction. And so they start thinking about, well, what's the right label? Um, I could label it this, but then maybe I should label it that, and so on and so forth. That's the kind of danger it is. The other thing is that um, even though it's not acknowledged, you really are trying to develop stable attention. And the other danger is that you, you get tired of following the rise and fall of the abdomen, or breath at the nose, or whatever it is. And so now, finding something to label becomes a game that breaks the boredom up, but it also inter- it interferes with the process of developing uh, stable attention. So, see, by knowing more about what's going on, 
you can both use labeling more effectively and avoid those pitfalls, right? Yeah, that's really helpful. Thank you. Hi. I was reading your book last night, and you were talking about a point where you're on the breath, but it takes, uh, like, vigilance or something. There can be, and the obstacles were strong energy currents, involuntary yes. stuff, and the fact that you're using effort and you don't realize you necessarily have to be. That you... That, you're, that you, you have a habit of using effort to stay on it, and you yes. may not be needing to do that, and you don't know it. That's right, yes. And you mentioned for you personally this was a yes. challenging part. Yes. So for the energy currents and the movements, you suggested paying a lot of attention to your daily life, reducing aversion, reducing worry, reducing remorse. Mm-hmm. And for the efforting part, you said, well, I mean, that's my question is more pointers. And in particular... How do you know you're making effort? Because sometimes mm-hmm. it's not apparent. And also you have this interesting, um, in your vernacular, you have diligence as being vigilance and effort. Yes. So you, clearly you have to reduce the effort, but do you, it sometimes feels to me I would just have to be less vigilant to do that. That's right. You do. And uh, you, uh, the effort comes in, the effort part comes in, uh, uh, remembering to stay vigilant and in uh in those instances when uh a distraction or uh, or dullness isn't automatically corrected for taking actually taking the uh appropriate action well it's really we could sum it up more as we did yesterday in that slide that was about the later stages it's uh, about stage 7 it's maintaining uh, sustaining the intention to be vigilant and, and to correct, because really, it's really what it all—all all your effort always comes down to maintaining the intention, and that's what you can lose, and that's what will cause a, a distraction to arise or dullness to arise in stage seven. Now, um, it's usually pretty obvious at that stage that that sustaining this vigilance and, and, and correction process is a kind of efforting, right? And what you can do is, it's, is just let go of that every now and then and see what happens. And if you find that when you let go of it, that does, dullness does start to develop or distractions start to arise, and you'll usually notice this before you know it becomes a gross distraction or before it becomes strong dullness, but you'll notice that, okay, I'm not ready to let go of it yet. Uh, the other problem, though, is that uh, you've, been, you've been making this effort to maintain these intentions and to, to do these corrections and to be vigilant for so long. It's, uh, it, you have to you have to overcome that you've had, it's, it's become a strong habit and you have to overcome the habit. What compounds that is many of us, uh, many of us are the kind of people that for whatever reason, we're used to, to being in control and, and all the way along, we've probably been wrestling with the, the, 
the idea that, you know, I'm supposed to be doing this, I'm supposed to be making this happen, you know. And so that's something that goes beyond just the habit of maintaining the attention and, and taking the corrective actions. It, it's, it's actually a personality characteristic of yours that you're going to have to teach yourself to, to let go of. And that makes it a little more challenging. And that's, uh, that's what I talk about in my book. I'm, I'm one of those kinds of people that, you know, um, that it was learn, learning to just surrender to the flow of, of things uh, took me a while. Uh, I will say something, though, that once you have overcome that tendency and once you can let go of that, you know, I mentioned entering into the flow. It makes jhana practice. Jhana is really flow, a flow state in meditation. And it makes entering jhana very easily. You remember, well, you you remember that you have to, you know, uh, to recognize to what degree, you know, some part of your mind is is trying to do and make things happen and just. Just surrender and let go, and uh, you know, it's like you picture yourself uh, in a, in a stream holding onto a branch and then just letting go and letting the stream carry you, right? Um, that is um, really really helpful. I just want to clarify one thing: Were you saying that maintaining the attention to be vigilant is different from being vigilant? And is are you supposed to let go of that or like? Yeah, the vigilance, the, the maintaining the intention. Uh, causes the vigilance to happen, and it's it's only your habitual selfing that says I'm being vigilant, right? So you let go of that intention. To yeah, you let go of that intention, right? And then you see if your attention stays where you put it, and when it does, uh, usually there's also it's accompanied by this this um, it's a combination of release and freedom and, and joy and it's uh, it's especially if you're if you're somebody that's always been in, in in being the doer it's like you know suddenly you're just soaring instead of <laughs> beautiful like that guy up in the top there yeah thanks so, so much um there was uh, somebody up here in front of the pillar that was actually was. Um, I'm wondering if my question is related. Um, it has to do. I was. I don't usually use the breath as my meditation object, mm-hmm. and I was experimenting with it. Yes. And I found that I periodically like have to take in more air, mm-hmm. and I don't have a respiratory health problem. Mm-hmm. Like I. No, yeah. I breathe fine. Um, well, what? <clears throat> and when you, yeah, go ahead. I didn't find it relaxing. Like I was able to stay on it, mm-hmm. but I didn't find it relaxing. Yes. Well, uh, what was probably happening, what was almost certainly happening, and this is very common, when people first start using the breath as a meditation object, rather than objectively watching something that's been happening naturally and spontaneously, 24 hours a day, your whole life, um, 
unconscious processes will alter the breath uh, in order to make it clearer and more easily to see. And if you're following the breath and trying to notice the beginning and the end of the in and out breath, um, your breathing will alter in order to make it easier to see that. Now, the most common problem that people perceive when they recognize that that's happening, it, they don't, it doesn't affect their respiratory function. I mean, their, their, their oxygen and carbon dioxide exchange is happening perfectly well, but they're worried that, that I'm not breathing naturally. I'm, and they say, I'm changing the way I breathe. And I say, well, are you really? Are you doing it on purpose? Well, no, but it's happening. Okay, so stop laying claim to something that you didn't do. So first of all, don't think that you're doing it. The other problem that arises much less often uh, much, much less often, is that when the when you unconsciously alter your breathing pattern in order to make it easier to follow the breath, you will either hyperventilate or hypoventilate, and then uh, it, it can be just subtle, you know, but it's just enough to create a sense of tension associated with the breath. So just remind yourself that you want uh, you, you, you want to just be the completely passive observer of the breath as it happens. And it doesn't really matter if you can distinctly see all the points in the breath, because eventually you will. And it will be a function of increasing uh, mental acuity rather than of, of the breath. Because what happens... If you follow the use of breath as a meditation object, you'll reach a point where your breath becomes so shallow and so faint that you will actually say to yourself, I can't believe that I'm actually getting, you know, enough oxygen exchange to keep myself alive, except I'm more alert than ever. Not only that, your, uh, your, your sensitivity to the sensations will become so acute that that very, very faint breath, that somebody looking at you might swear you're not even breathing at all, the sensations will be so intense they're almost painful because of the sensitivity that you developed to it. So anyway, back to what you were saying. It is natural when you first begin to observe the breath and follow the breath that the breath pattern will change as an unconscious attempt to try to make it easier to fulfill the goal. And for a very small number of people, that change in breath pattern will actually be enough to disturb the, uh, uh, the oxygen saturation or the carbon dioxide content of your blood. And when that happens, there are brain centers that, uh, uh, in, in your brainstem that detect this and uh, will potentially send a message to the higher centers that there's something wrong, okay? And you experience that as kind of a, uh, a discomfort. And, uh, but that usually goes away pretty quickly, especially if you just, just take a deep breath and say, okay, I'm just going to breathe naturally. Well, that deep breath is going to normalize things all by itself. You know, whatever minute 
uh, variation there is in your blood gases, that deep breath will take care of it. And then you remind yourself, I just want to breathe naturally. And if I find it starting to get, you know, uncomfortable, I'll just take another deep breath. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. I don't know who the microphone should go to next, so you get to decide. You've got it. So this, I might have the answer to this question already, but I want to hear from you. Yes. Um, so, like, I'm in a place where I, you know, when I meditate longer, I, I, I receive insight and. And that's a great place to be. I feel like I'm progressing mm-hmm. from where I was seven months ago. And, but I also want to know, like, where do you go from there? Like, what, how do you measure your progress um, from, from that point? Of- um, your progress in what terms? Um, like, you know, in the, seven sta- in the ten stages, like, like where, and- am I, where, where am I at? Okay, so in terms of the stages of samatha, mm-hmm. that's pretty clearly spelled out, I, I think, in the book. And um, so rather than go over that, if you have a specific question about some aspect of that, um, and you may have questions about insight, though. Is that... Yeah, I mean... Well, the first question I asked yesterday, I think, like, how do you know it's true? And you said, yeah. it's, uh, just investigate it and, and see if it works out for you in, in a way. Or mm-hmm. do you, should, is it possible to ask, like, people who are, like, a, you know, higher rank? Yes, right. Yes. Yes, if you have access to somebody that you can, can ask. But the the kinds of insights that we're interested in, the supramundane insights, mm-hmm. produce a f- pretty distinct uh, shift in the way you perceive things as compared to uh, the way you did before. And it stays with you and, and it permeates your experience. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, you'll know you're on the right track if you can... You know, you've all read all kinds of descriptions of what uh, what it's like to have insight or awakening from different sources and it's uh, you know it's like somebody describing something that you have absolutely no experience of and they're describing it differently because they're from you know a whole variety of different cultures different practice systems and things like that and it doesn't make sense to you but when you have when you have insight and you go back and you look at what people have said about it, and there's at least one, some aspect of it that all of a sudden it's like crystal clear, and you realize that even when they're using different language, they're all saying the same thing. Thank you. Yeah. Yes. Hi. Um, when I was meditating, I was able to keep attention for a while, and then I ha- all of a sudden had to cough. Mm-hmm. And... Then my body wanted to like keep coughing, and I took mm-hmm. my attention and I brought it to my throat, and I changed the um, meditation object, and I felt like one part of me said, "Just let yourself cough," mm-hmm. and the other part said, 
do that so that you don't cough and disturb mm -hmm. the room. And, um, and then I found that my throat was like opening when I changed. Mm -hmm. So is, I guess, I guess the question is, is that right? <laughs> sure. Well, yeah, I, mo most of the time a cough actually involves some kind of irritation or some mucus that needs to move or something like that. And it makes more sense to just, you know, you cough and get it over with. But there's no reason why, uh, you know, if, if you focus your attention on the cough and the need to cough goes away, then that puts it in the, more in the category of, you know, you have a, a, a pain that keeps distracting you and so you focus your attention on it and it goes away. Yeah, so, so it's fine. You try it. If it works, that's great. If it doesn't, you cough and then go back to meditating. You want to plus packs of these people in the back there, and then we'll go over to the other side here. Um, in the book, the descriptions of stages eight and nine seem extremely similar to uh, the third and fourth jhanas, particularly the um, mm -hmm. the full body and pleasure mm -hmm. jhanas. And I was just wondering how one would differentiate between actually achieving an experience in a meditation session at the stage of eight or nine versus spontaneously popping into a third or fourth jhana? Uh, well, you might spontaneously pop into uh, a, a jhana, especially if you've been practicing the jhanas before. But there are a lot of similarities between stages seven, eight, nine, and ten and the first, second, third, and fourth jhanas. The difference is... Jhana is a particular kind of state that the mind slips into and it has certain limitations to it. Within the jhana, uh, well, in, in, in a really light jhana, like the whole body jhana, there, there might be some possible to generate some volition and to make shifts and changes in, in uh, what's happening in your mind. But um, the, these are, this is kind of borderline jhana. Any of the deeper jhanas, you, you don't have any volition. Whereas in stages in 7, 8, 9, and 10, and where it's particularly valuable is in 8, 9, and 10, uh, you're capable of all kinds of volitional action and you can carry out the different kinds of uh, practices that are uh, described in those chapters, all of which are inside practices. Right. So that's the difference between a jhana is a, a state of automaticity where the, the volitional choices are no longer available. They're in suspension and you're in the flow of the jhana. Okay, uh, you know, you've let go of the branch, you're in the flow of the stream. Uh, in, in the jhana, uh, you, you can't do anything, but if you're not in the jhana, you can choose to swim. You can even choose to swim upstream if you want. So, so uh, is it possible to, um, when you're doing some jhana practice, uh, when you decide to end that, is it possible to maybe come out into a higher stage than what you were practicing prior to doing the jhana practice in that meditation session? It's possible, yes. 
And as a matter of fact, the reason, the main reason for introducing these jhanas as a part of the Samatha Vipassana practice, well, there's really two reasons, but one is it has that effect. It will greatly accelerate your progress through that stage because in the jhana you are uh, basically training the mind. You're, you're, You're producing a mental state which can then subsequently be accessed outside of the jhana, which will fulfill the requirements to move to the next higher uh, stage. The second purpose, of course, is that um, uh, jhanas themselves can serve as insight experiences. And there is a uh, a brief but... Uh, a brief description of how you do that in the appendix. And if you want a more detailed description of that, you go to the Majma Nikaya of the Sutta Pitaka and you go to a Sutta 111, the title of which is One by One. And uh, it's really a description of how Sariputta became an Arhat by using the jhanas. So, Thank you, that was very helpful. Yeah. If you, if you look at the breathing patterns of long-term meditators, they seem to breathe much slower. So, yes. So there was an article published a couple of weeks ago in Scientific Report uh, demonstrating that. And um, also, like, um, you look at the breath work. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, so, for example, the yogis that they, they train in doing like, longer exhalation periods yes. compared to inhalations. And that's what is naturally found in long-term meditators as well. So do you think, like we said before, that uh, you know, if you notice that you are changing your breathing, that might be disturbing. Mm-hmm. But could it work the the other way around? So by trying to mimic in the patterns of breath that long-term meditators have, whether mm-hmm. you could, you know, like have a loop into your meditation practice. You know, I never thought of that. Even though the fact that I know and even taught the fact that. Uh, as far as emotions go, every every emotion has a characteristic breathing pattern. And if, for example, you breathe the way an angry person breathes, you will start to feel angry. You know, there's an amazing connection between emotions and, and breath patterns. And this is part of how we read other people's emotions, of course. But the interesting thing is that is that if you breathe as if you were in a particular emotional state, you'll start to experience that emotion. Uh, and now you're says uh, why it never occurred to me that if you breathe like somebody who's in a very deep meditative state, might that facilitate entry into that meditative state? Good question. <laughs> yeah, fascinating question. Probably didn't spend enough uh, time thinking about pulmonary physiology. <laughs> My question has to do with um, fatigue towards the end of the meditation after letting go of the counting, uh, entering into the peripheral awareness and so forth, and it's like, oh, wow, and and everything felt wonderful and terrific, and this is working great. 
And then it got to the point of not sleepiness, but dullness and maybe boredom. And the mind, the um, thoughts were coming. And I said, "Uh uh-oh. So I went back to counting the breath. And similar to that woman, my basic question is, is that okay? (laughs) Yes, that is okay. As a matter of fact, I recommend that if you start, uh, particularly if you start having a lot of distraction and uh, uh, forgetting, mind-wandering, things like that happening, which wasn't happening before, go back and do the counting. Yeah, right. And so one can toggle back and forth using the different techniques and procedures. Yes, that's right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, you want to use them skillfully as tools. You're developing a toolbox and you use them skillfully. So. Thank you. So over the past year, I've I've been uh, I've read your book and I've completed reading it and gone back and forth reading it and experienced meditation um, to the point where I feel like I've really come to some f- more seasoned meditative uh, practice. And my question is, and, and and during that, the jhanas and all of this have been I've, I've interpreted myself as experiencing different jhanas. They seem to come and go. I found it a little confusing and a little hard to do it, but. I could follow. But my question is, is as I've gone to the sort of the upper levels of meditation where I'm really experiencing longer meditations and sits, I don't seem to go back that much uh, to the old ways of doing it. And I feel like I'm kind of in a place where I'm pretty, I guess I just sit down and say, okay, whatever works for me is fine. If this is working, I'm fine. I sit here and I, the first half of my, a third of my meditation, I'm kind of rumbling through things and sorting out and dealing with things and maybe resolving things. In the second half, I kind of feel like I'm moving to a new state of, mm-hmm. of uh, letting go, so to speak, mm-hmm. and, and uh, maybe a jhana experience or some lights might happen or I might have mm-hmm. some of that. And then, then I really seek to go to this place that's just this really, really super peaceful, quiet, almost like I'm not mm-hmm. breathing, almost like the door's all shut and mm-hmm. I... Uh, that seems my desire to do. And so I just spend my time now meditating to kind of go there. And I guess my question is, 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 that, is that okay? Am I, should I, is there, is there it's anything a, it's more? It's a nice place to stay, but it's a better place to, to use. I mean, if you have that degree, uh, I mean, when you talk about the quiet, where you're talking about is, uh, I think, you can, you can correct me, but you're in a state, uh, essentially, where there's no longer verbal thinking taking place. And that's, that's what the quiet is due to. And associated with that is a strong feeling of, of pleasantness and, and comfort. And use that as a platform to further develop skills and do the practices. Try, try to figure out what that state you're in corresponds to. Does it correspond to the state of effortlessness of stage seven? If so, start doing stage, the specific practices that are laid out in stage eight, you know, and, um, you're, what you'll probably find initially is, is these are active practices and, uh, initially you'll find that that uh, you you miss that calm peacefulness, but you know uh, these other practices are likely to bring you to insight. Um, you say you occasionally have lights, and you occasionally have you occasionally slip into 
a, a, a flow state, a jhana-like flow state. You'd be better off actually practicing the jhana systematically. And if the lights are coming, then going ahead and um, uh, letting that happen and doing a practice in such a way, not that you're sitting there in, in comfort, but you're, you're unifying the mind further and then you get an, an intensification of those lights. You'll start to get strange sensations and energy currents and movements. And so uh, you, wanna, you want to progress on both the path of insight and samatha. You don't want to find a comfortable place to just... I mean, well, I'll qualify that. Sometimes you need that, right? Sometimes things are happening in your life and you just, you know, it's wonderful to be able to take a break in that place. But that's not what the practice is about. Practice is about insight and awakening. And samatha uh, is a really powerful tool, so you want... You want to advance in the development of samatha rather than rest in a comfortable place along the way. Okay, thanks. Hi. Um, I'm trying to relate this model of attention and awareness to other models that I know. So one such model is Shenzhen Yang. So he talks about background equanimity. And I'm wondering, what? Background equanimity? Yes. And I'm wondering if it's similar. Um, so when he talks about the breath practice. He talks about attending to the breath and everything else, all non-breath, mm-hmm. uh, is in the background and you yes. equanimize it. Yes. So I'm wondering if that's his way of talking about attention and awareness. Exactly. That as you're breathing, everything else erupts, images, yes. thoughts, um, and um, you allow that to happen while focusing on the, uh, on the breath. Yeah, exactly. That's right. Yes. Okay. So what you're going to find is every effective practice and Shinzen's practices are quite effective. Uh, every effective practice is, in one way or another, in one form or another, it's it's developing uh, stable attention and and powerful awareness that ultimately becomes metacognitive introspective awareness. So, which piece of it is metacognitive? What's that? Which piece of um um, I guess I'm wondering about the metacognitive part of introspective awareness. Um, okay. So with with background equanimity, for example, what would be the metacognitive part? Okay. Uh, well, the metacognitive per- perspective itself brings a certain degree of equanimity because you're, you're now above what's happening. And you have largely, perhaps not entirely, but you've largely let go of any sort of judgment and want to and, and desire to control what's happening in your mind you're just observing what's happening in your mind right so um i have a question about uh, the energy movement mm-hmm. so um following your inst- I, I haven't had a chance to really read the the stages in your book um so with the instructions that you gave yesterday and today. Um, so in, today in my meditation, um, the, the energy just arose quicker than mm-hmm. it usually does. It usually takes me like the whole hour. Mm-hmm. But following your instructions, which are like very clear, you know, mm-hmm. thank you for that. Um, just that strong energy movement so arises. You know. right. 
So am I supposed to follow on that or no. should I go you, back to the breath? You just keep doing what you're doing that has caused that to happen and let that develop on its own. Okay. Okay, so the way to interpret these things when they come up, of course at first they're fascinating and there's a certain tendency to want to explore it, play with it, or, well, those energy currents can sometimes be uncomfortable and you might want to get rid of them and things like that. Resist all those temptations. I think I've, just, I've, I've gone yeah, back you're, and you're, forth. You're on that. the aversive side. Okay. So, but there's probably an element of curiosity, too. Like, wow, you know, this is, this is really different. I didn't know this could happen. Um, but just regard them as indications. They're signposts along the way. You know, that what's happening is supposed to be happening. And let them come, let them be, let them go. And you just keep doing the practice that causes them to come. And they will eventually resolve themselves and bring you to a much more wonderful place. So, um, we got opposite ends of the room. (laughs) Okay. Okay. Either way. Hi. Thank you. Two quick questions. One is, um, I'm preparing for my first uh, Wanka retreat for a couple weeks yes. in a month or so, and I don't know if you had any thoughts about how your practice might be applicable to embarking on that endeavor. The second one is um, the idea of sensations in the felt sense and the kinesthetic sense in terms of as they arise and one's mm-hmm. sort of uh, oftentimes in the West disassociation with the body and how to through the practice and possibly extended beyond the practice, uh, incorporate more of the subtleties of what those sensations and vibrations are and mean to inform the practice and and getting into that uh, sort of relaxed state of being as opposed to that hypervigilance of, you know, stumbling into the future, so to speak. Yeah. Can you put that in, in a, to a concise question? So or? the question is, is is there a way in which we can better identify the more subtle felt sensations in our bodies on a regular basis, including in the practice, uh, that because they seem to be the key to unlocking a lot of what we're trying to do? Yeah, well, that, that does tend to happen spontaneously, is that you become more and more aware of more and more subtle sensations in, in your body. If you're going into a Goenka retreat, that's going to be a big part of that retreat. Is uh, they're going to be you're going to be doing a, lot of, doing a lot of body scanning and being aware of those subtle sensations, and you'll probably come out of the Goenka retreat finding it much more easy, much easier to uh, detect those subtle sensations. I don't know if I'm getting to your question or not. Uh, uh, okay. One th- one thing recently had uh, uh, someone uh, uh, recently had an experience of going to a Goenka retreat where a lot of those energy currents and then involuntary movements and things like that happened, and the Goenka people were not familiar with that. They didn't know it was normal. They ended up uh, taking her out of the retreat, sending her to a hospital. Uh, thought she was having some kind of, you know seizures or psychotic break or something like that and got her family all worried and things like that. So one thing about the Goenka people is that they're they're pretty enclosed. They're not too knowledgeable about things outside of their system. So if you start 
if you start having a lot of involuntary movements or strong energy currents, um, you might be lucky enough to have somebody there who understands and knows about those things, but otherwise you might best keep it to yourself. <laughs> the other thing is, is they very much want you to follow their instructions and do the practice and, and I advise that you do that so that you can get the maximum benefit. Anytime you, you practice with somebody who's teaching a method that's different than what you usually practice, go ahead and you know, get into it as fully as you can and you'll be able to learn more. You'll, you, you, know, you will be able to, um, if you're practicing according to the method that I teach, then you'll have a lot of information by which you can can see what the similarities and, and and you can incorporate them into in into your overall understanding of the meditative process and how your mind works um, but uh, it's very difficult if you have been doing uh, a practice like this which actually has a broader scope and then you go into a practice which is much more narrow and restrictive in terms of what they want you to do, uh, not to not to bring some of your previous experience and knowledge into it. And I just suggest that you you wouldn't. Uh, it's best not to talk to the people running the retreat about that. Because I had some friends in California that went to a Guenca retreat and they were actually asked to leave because they made the mistake of talking about and they said well you're not following the method and you agreed at the beginning to follow the method and therefore they were quite disappointed and that didn't need to happen so you know I'm I'm, I'm not dissing Goenka at all believe me I'm just saying that I've, I've had people I've had students that have had these experiences and it's good to know right hi um, my question is primarily related to peripheral awareness, yes. and if it has different flavors or, or um, well, I guess what I'm asking is, um, when we sit down in meditation, the peripheral awareness is essentially a snapshot of the room, right? right, and the people around, and then as you sit down, that collapses, and then you start observing whatever it's, it's in, in, in your mind, right? Um, in the Qigong tradition, you can do that, uh, focusing on the breath, and then the the background is your body. Yes. Right. Um, is is that a the same peripheral awareness? Mm-hmm. Uh, yes. Only you focus, or like, is there a different flavor of it? <laughs> um, yeah, it's, uh, you could call it a different flavor of it. Yes, you, if. Um, if if your peripheral awareness is primarily of the body, you could regard that as a flavor. We could regard introspective awareness as a flavor, as exposed as 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 opposed to extrospective awareness. You could regard metacognitive introspective awareness as yet another flavor. So, yeah. So it comes in different comes in different flavors. What your intentions are. And what is most useful and valuable in the current circumstances are really going to determine the flavor of the peripheral awareness that you have. 
Okay, thank you. That's useful. So, so in a sense, if you're looking for insight, then mm -hmm. then this method is the is the best. And then if you yes. are looking for body healing, you you would use something in the Qigong tradition. Yes. And yes. focus on bone marrow washing yeah. and things like that. Absolutely. And also, there is a potential for the overlap of these too. Can like you talk? Can you talk a little bit more about that? Well, I'm kind of learning more about that myself. Um, in in my my tradition and really most uh, Buddhist meditative traditions, um, you know, it's it's very much about the mind, and the attitude is the body is just this lump of stuff that supports the mind. But um, uh, and, and we can compare that with the yoga tradition which uh, much more which integrates the body much more with the mind and I think that that is a really valuable direction I think maybe that uh, in, in my tradition the related traditions that neglect the physical aspect I think uh, and and this has just recently come to my uh, come to my attention I have a number of students in uh, teacher training course who are very physical kinds of people and for them if they don't incorporate something like qigong or tai chi or uh, yoga or something with their practice they you know they, they, they feel like they're missing a really big part of it and in our discussions uh, I've come to agree with them that all of us who haven't uh, been doing that have been missing out on uh, on a great opportunity so I think in the evolution of the science of awakening, that um, we're going to learn that that we can't treat the mind-brain in isolation from the body. And as a matter of fact, the body is uh, the primary mode of expression of those aspects of the unconscious that cannot be made conscious. The only way they can become conscious is through the body. So, thank you. Yes, thank you. Right. <laughs> oh, good. Yes. All right. Yeah. Hi. Glad to hear that. Um, I don't know if I have a question. I would like to share with you my experience in the in the previous meditation and and um, and have your thoughts and uh, clarity over it. So it feels, and this has happened to me also in the past. Um, is that uh, there's a point when I am like in attention, focusing in the breath, I'm there. I'm also aware of the thoughts passing. Sometimes like I look at them, let them go, go back to the, to the, to the breath. I'm also present in awareness. I'm aware of, the, of, of, of inside, outside, and the breath. And when I am kind of in that state, uh, energy starts to rise and get released and it all of a sudden it's like <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> like I'm like and I feel like a giant and I feel like I am not contained anymore in the body mm -hmm. but I am I'm gigantic mm -hmm. and um, that in one side in another side I also observe that there's these very soft um, um, streams within that of love, joy, and well-beingness. I'm I'm aware of those, mm -hmm. and 
I can choose to go on those and feels great. I'm great there. Yes. I'm fantastic there. So I guess my question is like, what is, <laughs> like, where, where it's coming from? Is mine? Is awareness where yes. I, some clarification? Yes. Mm -hmm. Okay. This, uh, your, 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 everything is happening exactly as it should. It's absolutely wonderful. Uh, you know, what you're describing, is pacification of the senses, unification of the mind, the rising of joy, and the uh, energy that's associated with that, and that's all. That's all described in the in the book in in detail, and it's it's completely normal. The thing to do, the the, the you know, first of all, to tell you everything is happening exactly as it should. You're doing great. It's wonderful. Okay. The second thing is uh, stay with the practice that's producing these this, uh, these effects rather than pursuing these effects. I mean, inevitably, these uh, these things that are arising hold a certain interest and fascination, and um, you know I, I won't fault you for exploring them, especially with feelings of joy and energy and things like that. Because almost everyone, when they begin to experience those, um, they have they're intrigued, they have curiosity. Uh, it's pleasant, it's desirable, and I, I won't fault you for wanting to dabble in them a little bit. But remember, the most important thing is to continue doing the practice that has caused these things to happen. They will continue to develop. They will become stronger. They'll peak. And then they will subside into an absolutely wonderful state of tranquility and equanimity. And that's what you're. That's where you want to go. Thank you. I I also have another question. Um, I was wondering um, how is that mind can do these things? Is like for instance, yesterday the lady that was sharing that um, if she sees an obese person on the subway. Um, the judgmental mind start like kicking in and saying this is wrong or whatever, and she's aware of it. I do have also those those stages where where I'm like I'm aware that ego is talking and and that is is telling me stupidity, right? And I'm I'm either like choose it and and believe it and take it or not. And um, so that I'm aware of that part of the mind, the the stupid, right? Mm -hmm. And then, but then I wonder how then uh, the mind can swing to deeper thoughts. For example, the thought that told me, "Oh, go to that workshop; it's gonna be good," or like the thoughts that have led me to 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 spirituality. Right? Mm -hmm. How is that that can swing like this, or is the deeper thoughts coming from other part of me? Yeah. Um. <clears throat> I think basically what you're describing is the fact that there are many parts to your mind, and and that uh, they can they can be doing different things. And once you get out of the illusion that you have only one mind and that you have a self in charge, then you can begin to experience this in a much richer way and a much more accurate way. You know, so. Uh, I had a little bit of trouble understanding some of what you said, and so I may have missed what your primary point was. But 
once again, it seems like you're describing the experience of being able to watch your mind and to watch multiple processes going on in your mind, some of which are interacting with each other and some of which are completely independent of each other. And that's, that too, as I said before, that's, that's, that's the kind of thing that, uh, it, it happens, it's good, and this is how we learn, uh, this is how we learn to understand our mind, and this is where insight comes from. We begin to see what's really going on in our mind, and then we have to let go of the naive notions that we've lived with all of our lives. You know, mm-hmm. right? You, you let go completely of the naive notion that, uh, I have a mind, you know, or, or, you know, that, there's there's a whole bunch of us up here, and uh, sometimes we get along better than others. <laughs> <laughs> and we do different things, and we do, and we have different functions, and we do them for different purposes. And uh, uh, there can be what we're looking for is a unification of mind, an agreement, uh, a clarity, uh, a, a shared basis of understanding that allows your entire mind to function uh, much more uh, much more as a, a whole while preserving all of the distinctive uh, and unique abilities and contributions of the different aspects of your mind. And that's what I'm going to talk about later is that we have parts of our mind that function, that, that take the same information and process it in totally different ways and produce completely different results. And we are, when we can enjoy both of those kinds of processes at the same time, we are so immensely far ahead of where we are if we are trapped with only one or the other. Hi, thank you so much. I've really enjoyed this weekend. And I think on Friday you were talking, you started talking about two forms of insight. And I just wanted you to talk more about that because I'm still yeah. getting I, what you were saying about mundane. and. Yeah, I, that's probably... That's, that's actually what I was going to uh, start talking about after, after the break. Uh, so let's save that question for after the break. It's just more questions specifically about the practice right now. And probably should have a break fairly soon, but yes, that's, that's right. Yeah. Um, so one of the experiences I have when I meditate is uh, getting caught up by thought. Um, and then when I come back, when I awaken, I guess, uh, it's accompanied by a jolt of fear. Of what? Um, of fear. Of like, fear. Yeah. And I'm wondering what that is and... Um, mm-hmm what to do next with it. Because I think it happens sort of several times. Over the course of meditation, I get carried away by thought that I'm back. But there's also this accompanying existential kind of fear that happens. Mm-hmm. Okay, this is... Um, um, what, what I think is most likely happening... Okay, so you have an episode of mind-wandering and you wake up again. Right, yeah, I think right. what precedes it actually is sort of this collapse of, uh, uh, of thought. So the thought collapses, especially the visual part of it, I think. Okay, so there's a, a collapse of thought that precedes it, all right. Um, well, you could be having uh, 
you know, I talked about when we have insights into things, where we have experiences that don't fit with our with what is our normal, uh, what we our normal way of seeing and understanding things. You're very used to there there always being this ongoing inner dialogue and chatter and things like that. And uh, when it stops, it could be disconcerting and it could be triggering a fear. But I think what might also be the case here is that um, there may be something deeper going on, that something in your past conditioning, belief systems, whatever it is at a deep unconscious level is reacting to this in, uh, in a way that brings forth fear. And uh, as you progress in your meditation, that's probably going to come to the surface and it's going to become apparent what it is. And uh, when it does, if you are able to just be with it from a place of mindfulness, of knowing who, who and where and what you are now, while, while observing clearly this uh, conditioned response and perhaps its sources, it's going to, there's going to be an internal integration that takes place. And the result is going to be this little surge of fear that you're experiencing is probably related to something that is affecting your life day by day in many experiences uh, and probably in a, in a negative way. And so once, once you have reintegrated the part of your mind that gives rise to this fear triggered by this particular instance, you're, you're going to be free of that part of your mind that is moderating your behavior in an unhealthy way uh, by, by introducing fear as a component to your responses. So you're going to become a, a more, you're going to become a more whole and uh, better functioning person. Looking forward to that. Um, my, uh, I was wondering, um, last year I was studying from your book quite a lot and I think I tend to get very ambitious. I think, especially living in New York, we get very sort of ego driven and ambitious and I was, I guess, what you call striving and I was, uh, I think I sort of experienced things, speaking of fear, that I wasn't quite ready for. Okay. And so I uh, um, sort of had to slow down and pull, meditate less um, and try to be more, well, uh, my question is, how do you know if you're making progress without making like if I do like an hour a day, mm-hmm. crazy things will happen. But if I do like 20 minutes or 30 minutes a day, sort of nothing will happen. Well, if you're meditating according to the instructions mm-hmm. and crazy things happen, then you're pro- most, almost certainly making progress. Okay? <laughs> um, because... Um, there are a lot of th- we, there are a lot of things that happen as a part of the meditative process, which, by 
by ordinary standards of people that are not familiar with this, seem like crazy things. Like what this gentleman was talking about here is, you know, I didn't identify it as such, but it's it's a kind of purification. And in stage four and stage seven, people go through a lot of purifications of, of unconscious uh, inner conflicts, problems, suppressed... Uh, 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 emotional trauma, all kinds of things like that. Like, meditation isn't meant to be psychotherapy, but it necessarily forces you to deal with a lot of stuff that you've managed to keep buried so that you could function. That's an example of crazy stuff, okay? Then these other things, like the lady here is talking about, uh, uh, strange sensations, energy currents, uh, involuntary movements, different things you've heard from people. All of this sounds and seems to other people like crazy stuff. But it's all... Um, it, it, it's, if, you, if it's the result of practicing the meditation and practicing it according to the instructions, it's all a sign of progress. It's the changes that manifest... Uh, ex, the, the changes that are taking place in your mind and your nervous system that are manifesting externally and at the conscious level. Uh, and uh, they only seem crazy because, well, because in the, in the, they are something that really is crazy that is getting resolved. What if it's not getting resolved? What is that? What if it's not getting resolved? Well, there are some times, yes, I should qualify, there are some things that um, may be very difficult and take a long time to resolve just using meditation, and there are some things that really um, it's not reasonable to expect to be able to resolve in meditation alone. Um, you know, some sort of uh, counseling therapy, uh, or um, even uh, positive psychology practices and things like that that you can uh, do as an adjunct to the meditation. With regard to those purifications, some people have uh, emotional trauma of a nature that they just simply aren't, aren't going to successfully be able to confront in meditation. When it comes up, they don't stay in a mindfulness of knowing where they are and who they are now, so that it can integrate. Instead, they get lost in, in the trauma. So in somebody like that, I'd say, re, you know, go see a therapist and work through this, and then when you come back to your practice, it won't be a problem. I'm not saying that that's what you're talking about, because I don't really know what, what craziness you're talking about. But it's true that there are some things that meditation alone won't resolve. And so you find other ways to resolve them. So are you saying that your book does not work for everybody? The book works for everybody. But I'm saying that for some people, they need more than just that. Yeah. Uh, in order for... You, you can get stuck at a certain point where uh, the book is not going to help. Because as I say... Meditation does, by its very nature, it, it, you know, it, you, you do some self-psychotherapy that can be quite significant. Uh, and it has to happen. And if it doesn't happen as a part 
early on in the meditation process, when you begin to have insight, it's going to have to happen there and it's going to make it very traumatic. And that leads to the sort of dark night experiences that some people hear about. It's because they didn't work through these things earlier on in the process. And I'm just saying, some things are too big uh, for, uh, for the person to handle only with the techniques that are available as a part of meditation. I guess what I mean is, okay, one more question. If okay. you can simply slow down and carefully take the dark night in teaspoonfuls. Um, you can do that. You can do that. Yes, you can, you know. Um, but still consider the option of, of other things that are, would be adjunctive to the process and speed it up. And the fewer spoonfuls of dark night that you have to deal with, the better. I, I, I've tried a lot. Thank you very much. You're welcome. We can talk more later. Yeah. Um, so that dark night, I, I find that without effort, without even being aware that the intention is when I sit in group, in sangha, it slips in to higher stages. Yeah. You know, it just does. Yes. Okay, so... <clears throat> uh, that wasn't a question. I, uh, <laughs> but uh, so, there's a question there, yeah. Yeah, uh, you, you, you're, you're making a, a comment on something that uh, that when you're meditating in a group, you reach higher stages of meditation than you do when you're sitting by yourself. Yeah. How many people have that experience? Yeah, see? Um, the other thing is when you meditate in the presence of a very... Of, one or more very experienced meditators or a highly competent teacher, you find you have much better meditations. This is one little inkling of a deeper truth that uh, we're all connected in ways that we're not aware of. We're mentally connected. And uh, when you have a room full of people meditating, it creates a resonant field. And your mind will begin to harmonize uh, uh, or, or resonate with that, that field and you'll, you'll enjoy the benefits of it. Okay. In, 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 I, f- I found that that was very helpful instead of therapy was just group meditation yes. uh, in, in right. adjunct to trying yeah. to get back to a personal practice, a solitary yeah. practice. And the question I have is when you're in insight, not to not to strive for it or to look for it, but does it necessarily come accompanied with peace, insight and peace, or is there insight and agitation at the same time? Well, uh, it depends on a number of factors. Insight can be extremely uncomfortable and agitating, and uh, you know, in, in the classic description of the progress of insight the insight experience of impermanence associated with what's called the knowledge of dissolution is immediately followed by the knowledge of fear, followed by the knowledge of misery, knowledge of disgust, knowledge of determination for liberation, and knowledge of, of uh, reobservation. And these collectively are referred to as the knowledges of suffering. suffering so insight can create a lot of suffering. When insight matures, and there are a number of different insights, and that was the question that was asked earlier, and I said that 
we talk about that when we come back from a break, is that all these different insights are really different aspects of, of an understanding of a much deeper truth. And until you have all of them and until they have matured uh, sufficiently, the, uh, the result can be very uncomfortable. Once everything comes together, and this is usually associated with uh, awakening, making the transition from being a worldly to an awakened being, it's usually associated with very powerful feelings of, of tranquility, equanimity, uh, joy, happiness, uh, all of these other positive things. Okay? Take a break for 20 minutes. You've patiently sat for almost two hours now. I know you heard that. And I know you can hear me now, because I can hear me now. <clears throat> okay. So, I, I thought I'd like to uh, take advantage of the time we have left to talk a little bit about awakening and insight. How much we'll be able to say, I don't know. But first of all, uh, the first slide here. Uh, awakening involves a profound shift in our intuitive understanding of reality. And that's very important to understand. It's intuitive. It's not intellectual. Um, when you have an insight, it may include an intellectual understanding, but it's possible to have an insight that is the cognitive shift has occurred at a completely unconscious level and uh, and uh, it will be only subsequently based on your experience and reflection and so forth uh, uh, and perhaps coupled with reading and discussing with a teacher that that you actually recognize the nature of the insight that has occurred it is a cognitive event what do we, what do we mean by that it, it's uh, to, to, to cognos, it means to to know, and the shift that involve that's involved, it's, it involves a completely different way of knowing, and it's a change in a fundamental piece of uh, of, of information that serves as a foundation for the way we construct our reality. In case you didn't already know it, each of us is living in our own world that is created by our mind. Not that there isn't something outside of your mind, because there most definitely is. Um, but your mind has created a world, and I don't know what the world is like inside any of your mind. We each live in our own universe. But the universe your mind creates that you live in is based on some certain a certain set of assumptions. Uh, the the mind, if anything, is a, a logical machine, and even the most irrational, what appears to be the most irrational 
uh, mental processes are actually logical. They're only irrational because of the assumptions that the logic uh, is based on. So, and this is really what happens when we become awakened is it's a, a shift in the assumptions upon which uh, the brain's processing of information is based, the mind's processing of information. Um, awakening is uh, a culminating insight in a series of very special insights. And we'll identify what those are. I have to go to a different slide set. There are five key insights. Now, this is, this is basically our left brain way of thinking, of analyzing a, a way of relating to a greater truth, uh, dividing them up into seven aspects. So, you should probably look at all five of these in, insights as just being looking at the same thing from a different from different perspectives, because they all, as as we were talking about them, you see they come into um, they, they they flow into each other, and and uh, they all come to the same thing in the end. The fifth insight into the illusoriness of a separate self uh, is the culminating, culminating insight that actually brings awakening. And until, until, that, uh, until that insight occurs, you're not truly awakening. And as a matter of fact, the more other insights you have before you have that one, the more traumatic the process is going to actually be. But the whole idea of samatha is that it prepares the mind to be the ideal instrument for not only for uh, achieving insight, but for achieving awakening uh, relatively painlessly. Uh, as long as we cling to the notion of self, the implications of the other insights are deeply disturbing. Absolutely terrifying. They make you totally miserable. They fill you with a sense of disgust at being trapped in such a universe. They fill you with this powerful urge to escape. And, and if you have the wisdom, you realize the only escape the only way to escape is to go forward and push through, which leads to you going back and uh, allowing the insights that have been so disturbing to reach a state of maturity. And that's what in the progress of insight is called the knowledge of terror, the knowledge of misery, knowledge of disgust, knowledge of determination, and knowledge of, of reobservation. <laughs> But it's all because we cling to the self. Why does that happen? 
Yes. Um, from this point forward, uh, we're, we're talking about um, really when you, most people on the path of samatha, by the time they reach stage seven, um, people start to have insight. Um, and the farther they go, the more likely they are to have insight and all of these insights and awakening. Some people will have insights much earlier on in the process, but it's fairly uncommon. And some people won't have their first insight until uh, maybe stage eight or nine or ten. But usually in, in uh, uh, progress of shamatha, uh, some degree of insight usually begins to occur around stage seven and stage eight. There's variations. As in, insight accumulates, uh, your understanding of yourself in relationship to the world changes, and the effects can be enormously unsettling. Awakening is not without its price of admission. So the truth revealed by insight stands in stark contradiction to the three assumptions that are the foundation of all our beliefs and actions and our very sense of meaning and purpose in this world. I am a separate entity, a self, capital S, in a world of other distinct entities. And of course, I always worry about what happens to the self day to day. But another aspect of this is we fear death because um, it, it threatens the dissolution of this precious, this self that we cling to and find so precious. And so we're naturally drawn to any system of belief that promises that that there's that the self won't die, the body will die, all kinds of other things can die, everything else can die. I don't care as long as my self doesn't die. And and uh, my happiness and my unhappiness depend on my interactions between myself and these other entities. This is how you spend your life, right? You rely on your presumed ability to understand and predict how the world works in order to influence those interactions in a way that maximizes your happiness and minimizes your suffering. How well does it work? <laughs> so, but, but we really, the, the parts of your mind that process information and generate your world view that doesn't work all that well and contains a lot of suffering. And I'm not talking about physical pain here, I'm talking about the suffering your mind generates. Most of your, most of the worst unpleasantness that you have experienced throughout your life has been generated by your mind and has absolutely nothing to do with physical pain. Even terrible physical pain, most of the terribleness of it is your mind's reaction to the physical sensation. It is not the physical sensation itself. Pain is inevitable in life. The suffering is mind-generated and the wonderful thing about the science of awakening is that uh, 
suffering, this mind-generated component, is optional. Pain's inevitable, suffering is optional. Before insight can give rise to a greater liberating truth, this old foundation has to fall away. And this is not a pleasant experience. I mean, it's like taking one of these skyscrapers and you're going to replace the foundation, right? While leaving the rest intact. <laughs> um, you would not want to be given that job. Um, and the emotional distress it produces can, can be extreme. Okay, but my promise to you is that the training in Samatha and the Eightfold Path will spare you most of the trauma associated with awakening. And I stress the Eightfold Path because this book is mostly about meditation. Although throughout the book, I'm trying to disengage you from the notion that there, that you are a self, that you are a separate, that you that there's anybody in control, that there's anybody doing things. And the more, the more you pick up on that cue in your meditation, those cues in your meditation, and the more that you, you experientially verify that in fact that, that, um, Thinking happens, feelings happen, uh, all everything happens. But uh, and and you are a person, but there is no agent who is a part of this person that is making this happen. That you know, uh, meditation is mind training, but you don't train your mind. The mind trains itself. You don't decide to meditate. The mind, or parts of your mind, because your mind is very multi-parted, um, uh, enough parts of your mind have decided to meditate that meditation happens. Um, but even that particular collection of parts of your mind can't be referred to as you, because they're just mental processes and their mental process is made up of other mental processes. And they only happen to join the Let's Meditate Club because of causes and conditions that led to those sub-processes coming to the same place. You get the, the picture? So, uh, so what, what we're trying to do, uh, what I'm trying to do in, uh, in, in this book is to help you to use the information that's staring you in the face every time you find that you can't do what you thought you could do with your mind, to realize that there ain't no you there to begin with. And that's why, there is just your mind. Okay. These, let's look at these insights. Insight into impermanence. You know, they speak of there being three gateways into uh, meditation or into awakening and I'll explain what that means is that uh, typically what happens there is one insight that opens the door for the other insights and so it serves as the gateway and then when all of the when all of the insights have received have been achieved and received 
have uh, achieved a certain uh, degree of maturity. And they won't be completely mature. That won't happen till you become an arhat, fourth path, or even beyond that. There's a continuing process of maturation of these insights. But not until you have all of these insights and they've achieved a sufficient degree of maturation and you're actually in a state of equanimity uh, will awakening occur. That equanimity is extremely important. Um, Awakening only occurs in a state with a, of tranquility and equanimity corresponding to shamatha. If you take a dry, the dry insight practice, for example, for those of you who are familiar with it, the 14th uh, stage in the progress of insight is the knowledge of equanimity towards formations. That is tranquility and equanimity. That is a form, a version of samatha. So you only achieve awakening when you have sufficient equanimity and you also have uh, these insights have matured sufficiently. And it occurs at an unconscious level. That's the important level. The intellectual understanding is, as I said before, it's a helpful thing to have because the unconscious mental processes can then uh, use this as a reference point uh, in in establishing a new foundation for perce- your perception of yourself and your reality. But consciousness itself is not even necessary and requisite to awakening. It have what what is intuition? Intuition is knowledge that comes into consciousness from the unconscious mind. And so the source of all intuition and what is intuitive are the unconscious processes that give rise to the information that rises into consciousness. I said before in that diagram, consciousness is a very small part of the mind. Consciousness is essentially just information exchange by all of the different unconscious components of your mind. That's really all it is. And if we examine the information processing capacity, uh, the, the bit rate of consciousness, it's very low. There are billions of bits of information uh, being generated by your body and by different parts of your brain in, in, every, uh, in every second. The... Uh, there have been attempts to measure the bit rate of uh, consciousness. They've all made the mistake of measuring the bit rate of attention, which is serial, rather than the bit rate of, uh, of consciousness as a whole, which uh, includes the result of a lot of parallel processing. But the bit rate of, the bit rate of uh, attention, of information processing, compared to the billions of bits of information that are being produced in the mind in every moment from the sense organs and from the mind itself is in the order of uh, 
estimates, uh, some estimates run as low as, as 20 or 30. I think that's an underestimate. Um, bottom range of about 40 bits per second up to maybe 80 bits per second. So consciousness is not really terribly important, although it's the only tool we have to use to get here. Okay? But when the awakening happens, all the important action is happening. In terms of insight and awakening both, all the important action is happening um, in the unconscious level. And, um, and then you become conscious of the fruits of it afterwards. Right. So let's look at them individually. Impermanence. I have talked about this before, so I'll just be repeating myself, but your, your standard worldview is that things come into existence, they have a period in which they are uh, self-existent, uh, and then uh, they arose due to causes and conditions, they have a period of persistence, and then due to causes and conditions, they pass away. And we focus on a world consisting of things which are um, that period of persistence between the arising and passing away. As the insight into impermanence develops, you begin to know, you may know consciously, but what's important is you see at an unconscious level that in fact there are no things that the arising and the passing away, there's the arising and the passing away and there's no persistence in between. Except that that's not even true. And that's, the, that's not impermanence. That's getting close to impermanence. It's when you realize that arising and passing away are only an illusion that is secondary. It's necessitated by the illusion that we've already dropped, that there was a thing that was in a period of endurance between the arising and passing away. Once there is nothing to persist between the arising and passing away, then the arising and passing away themselves dissolve into meaningless, and then you achieve insight into impermanence, which is that there is only process. That's insight into impermanence. Emptiness. Emptiness is the insight that realizes that everything, everything that appears in consciousness is a, a construct of your own mind. It's a mental fabrication. Um, the closest that we can get in terms of conscious events to... Uh, uh, to something that is not a mental fabrication is a kind of mental fabrication that we would call a sense percept or in the language of uh, uh, cognitive science we refer to it as a qualia Q-U-A-L-I-A that's something like the color blue or red or the taste of salty or sweet or the feeling of warmth or coolness these are, are qualia, or qualia sometimes pronounced. I, I prefer qualia because the, the word, it's 
closer to quality, right? So I pronounce, I, I like to pronounce it qualia, but, um, or another way of describing it is sense percepts. Are these real or are these mental constructs? They are mental constructs. The color red is created in your mind. It does not exist in the world. What exists in the world is electromagnetic radiation of a particular frequency that breaks down certain pigments in the retina of your eye, which causes certain neurons to fire and go to a part of your brain that creates the color red. The color red does not exist in the world. For that matter, your red may be my blue, and you and I would never know because we point to the same thing and we give it the same name. For for that matter, your color red may be my salty, but um, we would never know because every time you point to a red thing and say, that's red, I have the experience that you would call salty, and, and I say, yep, you're right, that's red. These are mental constructs. There is absolutely no component of our uh, conscious experience that is not generated by our mind. Now, let's not slip into uh, hyper-idealistic solipsism. Uh, that does not mean that nothing exists outside your mind. Something, there is something corresponding to what we call electromagnetic radiation, which is only a fiction that we've created to explain our experience. There is something out there, and it follows its own laws, and it somehow interacts uh, with our mind to trigger our mind to generate red, or saltiness, or warmth, or coolness, or things like that. So emptiness is not stating an ontological fact that nothing exists. It's stating an epistemological fact that absolutely nothing that arises in your mind is has a self-nature of being what it is. It is something constructed by your mind in response to something that's outside of your mind. After all, you think about it, all of the sensory information that enters your brain is identical in form. It's, a, it's an electrical impulse traveling along a nerve fiber. And the only thing that differentiates one from another is its origin and its destination, right? So, then your brain, mind, takes that information and uh, it, it creates a world from it. Think about yourself as an infant. You didn't know, you didn't have a world, but an analogy that I give it. Imagine, imagine you're in a room and the walls are covered by banks of colored lights blinking on and off. You've got some levers and buttons in front of you and you have absolutely no idea what any of this means. But gradually you begin to discern patterns in the blinking of the lights. And then you notice when you push certain buttons or you pull certain levers that it changes the patterns in the lights. And some of the patterns you like and some of them you don't and so forth. That's kind of like an infant, right? And sensory information comes in and it begins to create uh, meaning out of, out of it. Uh, and the infant, the things like, uh, first of all, the infant 
cries but not intentionally and then a good thing happens. There's a sensation of uh, warm milk, soft breast, uh, relief of, of hunger, so on and so forth. But gradually it starts to become intentional, you know. It's like, like the little man in the box we described starts to push buttons and pull levers and say, oh, and I push this button, that good thing happens. I pull this lever, that bad thing happens. That's what emptiness is, the realization that everything is a fabrication of the mind. And we combine that with impermanence and we say, whatever, whatever it is that's outside of my mind, that my mind is a part of, is only process. And the world that I live in, uh, this part of the larger process has created for itself in order to explain in its own limited way um, what that larger process is. And um, another really important insight is the causal interdependence of all phenomena. Absolutely everything is causally interdependent. And I'll use the analogy that um, people who have listened to my talks are tired of, which is there is at this moment in Hong Kong a cockroach. And you are sitting in this room listening to me. Now that event in Hong Kong and this event here, let's just take yourself as an example. You being here and hearing me is a result of causes and conditions. Not some linear chain of causality, but there is a, are a huge number of immediate causes and conditions that were necessary for you to be here right this instant. And every single one of those is dependent upon a similarly huge number of causes and conditions that had to be just so for that to be true. And that in turn. So if you sitting here is this event, and this is the past, there is this expanding, very rapidly expanding cone of causality that encompasses, it expands very rapidly. It it ultimately encompasses the entire universe. The same is true of that cockroach in Hong Kong. And its cone of causality intersects with your cone of causality. That means if that cockroach didn't exist in Hong Kong, right in the place that it is right now, doing whatever it's doing right now, you probably wouldn't be here. Causal interdependence. And the other thing about causal interdependence is that it is the realization that nothing stands outside of causal interdependence. Something may seem like magic. Something may seem supernatural. But something is only supernatural because we don't understand how it the causal factors that cause it to be.
If you took if you took a cell phone back to somebody in the 1950s and demonstrated it for them, they'd be they'd be pretty amazed. What if you took it back to somebody in the 1500s? They'd swear it was magic. You took it back to somebody two or three thousand years ago, and you're God. Let me worship you. You know, magic. Um, insight into causal interdependence frees us from the illusions of uh, and, and delusions that uh, there is anything that is separate. Anything that we're not a part of the whole, anything that we're not that was not subject to causal influences of everything else, or anything that could act and its action not produce causal consequences would be totally irrelevant. Maybe there are such things in some alternative universe which we're completely separate from. But everything that everything in this universe, everything in the universe that you create in your mind, uh, if it were if it is accurate, then it will include the basic assumption that everything is interconnected, uh, is causally interconnected. Because, in fact, whatever the mystery is that lies out there beyond our sense organs is 100% totally causally connected. So let's throw the supernatural off the window and call it what it is. It's something that we don't understand yet. But once we do understand it, we're going to find that it's totally understand. It's, it's completely be. Uh, it fits in perfectly with everything else that we do know. Right. All right. Um, the nature of suffering, the form that that insight takes, what that insight consists of, really is that as long as I think I'm a separate self in a world that is only process that my understanding of is the invention of my own limited mind. And one thing I didn't mention when I was talking about the emptiness is the way your mind creates its reality is a result of your conditioning. I mean, not that we come into this world as a blank slate exactly, because we have we have some hardwired predispositions for sure. But from that basis, it's all of the things that happened to us and everything that we did in response to them that conditioned your mind to be the way it is right now and to have created the universe that you live in right now. When you when you realize there is only process. And when you realize that the only things that you know are fabrications of your own mind, then the idea that you can ever understand things well enough and manipulate the world successfully enough to truly be happy and avoid all suffering crumbles totally, right? You're like a minnow trying to push the Titanic. And emptiness says, you don't know nothing. (laughs) And nothing is what you need to know. (laughs) 
causal interdependence and so forth. So this is really, this is, when you have these other insights and you still believe that you are a separate self, this is where the terror, misery, and disgust come from, right? That's not a nice place to be. But when you realize that you are not a separate self, that the self was an illusion, that the self was empty, it is totally liberating. Right? There, it, it, is, it is totally liberating. You cease to cling, and when you cease to cling and you cease to crave, you cease to suffer. You, your mind ceases to generate that suffering which characterizes human existence. Uh, the Buddha said that uh, our lives are full of suffering. Basically, the first noble truth is that pain is inevitable, but suffering is optional. The second truth is that craving, based on the illusion that we are a separate self, is the cause of all our suffering. That's why our mind generates this state of uh, unhappiness, of suffering, is because it's it's clinging to this false illusion that there's a separate self, and that your happiness and unhappiness come from outside of you, and that you have some chance of manipulating the world to make yourself happy, you know, and it's not true. But when you replace that, now see, the one in the middle, the causal interdependence of all phenomena, means that you are a part of everything, inseparably. And impermanence is telling you the same thing. And emptiness is defining your relationship to it. And now, instead of being in a terrible place, you find your non-self as a process that is a part of a much, much greater process. And you realize that the greatest knowledge that you can have is to know that you don't know. Right? And when you realize that the world that you are living in is created by your own mind, you become enormously empowered. Because you can change the way your mind creates the world. As a matter of fact, that change happens as soon as you have these insights. As soon as you have the insight into the fact that you are not a separate self, then the world that your mind creates is completely different. Because you've changed the fundamental assumptions by which the mind processes information and the product that is generated in the end is different. And the third noble truth is that uh, a complete and total end of suffering is possible if you overcome the delusion that gives rise to craving, since, it is, since craving is the immediate cause of suffering, and since the delusion 
that you're a separate self in a world of separate objects and that your happiness and unhappiness come from your interaction, um, that that is the delusion that gives rise to the craving. So a complete and total end of suffering is possible when uh, you're in, when every part of your mind is no longer functioning uh, based on that delusion and instead functions based on the wisdom that is, that is described uh, in terms of these insights. That's what awakening is. That's what liberation is. And that's the, the goal that we're, that we're after. So you notice how key certain things are to this. The reason that we go through life not knowing the truth of impermanence is that there's a part of our mind that constructs things. It takes, it takes our experience, both sensory and the internally generated experience of our own mind-brain, and it fragments it, and it labels those fragment, that fragments. So there's a part of your brain that takes information and it fragments that information into a world of things. And then, on the basis of your accumulated conditioning and, and knowledge and experience, it imputes a particular nature to each one of those things. interesting thing is that this fellow over here might find the same thing that I find terrible and ugly might find beautiful and wonderful because the nature that his mind imputes to that thing is, that is just a creation of his mind anyway that uh, to the degree that his conditioning is different than mine and his experiences are different than mine. You know, he sees it one way and I see another it another way. Now we're all similar enough that the same, the same parts of our brain are going to see rocks as rocks. But the more complex the thing that we're examining is, the more it's going to differ from one person to another. One of the most complex things that we have as a part of our environment are other people. And isn't it amazing how different we all perceive the same person, how differently we perceive the same person? For that matter, the way I perceive myself bears very, very little relationship to the way any of you see me, right? But the same is true. Every single one of you is perceiving me uh, differently in many, many ways. And you can acknowledge that. I don't need to demonstrate it for you. But your mind imputes a nature. It, first, it constructs a thing out of the flow of information. And then it imputes a particular nature to that thing. And part of that is its desirability and its undesirability. One of the things that 
your mind has separated out of the flow is the self. You know, the narrative center of gravity of the part of the mind that uh, it's really a it's really a memory function. It's a short-term memory bank that that generates episodic memory that gets stored elsewhere and can be recalled. Um, but for that story to make sense for minds like ours, uh, it has to have a there has to be a narrative center of gravity, and that's the I, that's the self. But this same part of our mind makes that I into something real and concrete and something that we can be very fearful of losing, and something that we can cherish greatly. And, uh, and the whole thing goes on, and uh, uh, if we're not happy, but we think having something else will make us happy, then craving arises. And if we get that thing, we might be happier for a short period of time until we lose that thing, or until the, the ability of any anything, any any event or anything that we get to make us happy is limited. It wears off. It, it the, the same thing doesn't keep making you happy, right? In 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 this game, uh, uh, in this game that we're trying to play, we just can't win, even when we get what we want. We eventually lose it, and often before we've even lost it, it no longer makes us happy. Not to mention the fact that a lot of time, by the time we've gotten it, the cost was way was was way higher than what it's actually worth to begin with. So we're off pursuing something else that we think is going to make us happy. And we could tell the same story about all the things that make us unhappy and. Uh, but the truth is, where is the happiness and unhappiness coming from? When you got the thing that you wanted, where did the little burst of happiness, uh, of, of happierness, uh, come from? Did it come from the thing? Was it inherent in the thing? Was it inherent in the relationship between you as five aggregates and, and, and the thing? No. It's something that was generated in your mind purely in response to the mind's own fantasy. Right? So, there's a part of your mind that in order to take the things that it has generated with the natures that it has imputed to them, um, that simplifies the reality down to a linear kind of causality. Acorns cause oak trees, and it disregards everything else. And and oak trees live for sometimes hundreds of years, right? Persist for a long time. The same part of your brain that's doing that is uh, is is reducing causality to something linear. And anything that it can't explain, it attributes to the supernatural or makes it magical. And uh, all of these things apply to the self. And in the whole process, 
your mind spends a whole lot of time generating suffering for all the reasons that you've all heard about before. In the game of life, when it comes to suffering versus happiness, you can't win and you can't break even. But you can get out of the game. And that's what this is about. Now, I th- if, you, if we go back to... Let's, let's go back to awareness and attention. Okay? Now, these are perceptual phenomena arising in consciousness. But there's a massive amount of information processing that is going on that gives rise to these two perceptual modes. And these two perceptual modes are distinct from each other because a different kind of processing is taking place. Even though it's the much of the information it starts with is the same. Um, so, so the what that it's doing is the same, but how it's doing it is different. Now, you've probably all heard about, you know, the right hemisphere and the left hemisphere and how different they are from each other. And we're going to use that as a metaphor. I mean, the truth is, there's some truth in that. There are certain mental functions that are, that, that are predominantly uh, originate in one hemisphere or the other and the specific uh, specific portions of the neural circuitry that um, generate the particular characteristics that you've heard listed as right brain and left brain. The truth, though, is that um, even even the most lateralized things that we know about like language, are not confined to one hemisphere. But we can still metaphorically say, since, since a lot of the core activity for certain kinds of mental processing occur in the right hemisphere, and they're different than the kinds of core processing occur in the left hemisphere, we can speak of this metaphorically while knowing that all of the neuroscientists are going to cringe and say, it's not really like that. <laughs> but that's all right. This is enough of a truth, and everybody's familiar with it enough that, um, that we can use it. And um, these th- I think things that we're talking about, the part of your brain that um, breaks things down into parts, that creates things out of process, is very left-brainish, right? So we just call it left brain. Okay. The left hemisphere of your mind breaks things down into parts and breaks the parts down into parts. And it imputes nature to the parts at the different levels. And this is an absolutely wonderful thing because it allows us to analyze, it allows us to create, it allows us to to 
make tools and use them. It allows us to invent. It allows us to figure out how things work. It allows us to fix things that don't work. It allows us to create things to do jobs that never existed before. It's an absolutely wonderful, wonderful faculty. And it's only able to do this because it takes the information and it processes it by breaking, breaking the inf- by, by chunking the information, putting labels on it, and things, uh, imputing particular natures to to those things, and then it can manipulate them and play with them and and do all kinds of wonderful things. We are so fortunate to have this capacity. And we have this capacity to a degree that no other uh, animal that we know of, uh, I mean, we can't, we don't know enough about whales and dolphins and things like that. But in terms of all the terrestrial animals whose brains we've studied and can, uh, you know, we have this capacity to a degree that's completely unprecedented in evolutionary history. It's wonderful. What a great gift. It's allowed us to, I mean, look what we've done. My God, how can we question it? Look at science. The things that we can say about the origins and history of the universe and the behavior of matter at, uh, uh, at supra, super sub-microscopic scales and the quantum behavior of things, uh, you know, this is all the result of the same part of our brain that creates these problems. Isn't that interesting? Now, what does the right hemisphere do? It sees things holistically, right? Holes. Even when it's given pieces, it makes them into holes. And it is. In a properly functioning brain, the two sides are talking to each other. And this is tremendous, too. Um, it just turns out that the processing that's done by the right hemisphere is a closer approximation to the way the great mystery outside of our mind operates. Because we can't really know what lies beyond our senses except through inference. But what we know through inference and even through science, the left, our left brains through science have figured out that the nature of the great mystery out there is that it, it is process. And it, it's figured out science and, and scientists and philosophers have discovered the truth of emptiness and they've discovered the truth of no self. All of these wonderful insights are now a part of the intellectual property of uh, human culture that has been developed and, uh, by the left brain. But it remains as an intellectual thing. We continue to see the world in terms of the left brain paradigm. We don't see ourselves as nearly as interconnected as we should. Now, what I'm going to suggest to you is that, let's put it 
in terms of natures, that we have two distinct natures. Okay, human nature. And those two natures are out of balance. The right hemisphere is actually a little bit bigger than the left. And the assumptions that it works on when it processes information are actually more accurate in terms of whatever ultimate truth is. But it has gotten to be suppressed because the left brain functions have been so wonderfully successful. And we've progressed, and this is a cultural phenomenon, because we're born with the same brains that we had um, before this, this ever happened. You know, I, I'm suggesting to you that this change in the way that our brains work probably started, sort of had its beginnings with the Cultural Revolution, and really got, it really hit a high degree of momentum about 5,000 years ago. And now in the digital era of, uh, uh, that includes the, the capitalist era and all of these other things, basically all of the problems that we face in the world are the dark side of the side of our brain and the kind of information processing that has also uh, contributed so enormously to our success. But let us not neglect the role of the right brain in this. In addition to being capable of this kind of analysis and tool use and creativity and building and everything else that we have, we are also the most highly social species in the world. As the left brain grew and developed, so did the right brain. And although we live in a left brain dominated culture that tells us, that tries to tell us there is no such thing as altruism, that there is only enlightened self-interest, and that's your best case, and the way that the world functions is on the assumption that nobody ever does anything except for their own personal benefit. And so if you want people to do good, you figure out a way that they get rewarded, somehow or another. And that even even do-gooders who go around being do-gooders only do it because it makes them feel good. Right? Not because... I mean, this, this, this is what our culture tells us. It's not because they see us all as interconnected and all part of one greater process. But the fact is that a lot of people do. Some people, their right brain hasn't been suppressed to quite the same degree. We use both. Uh, we couldn't have this if we didn't cooperate enormously. We could have this tremendous left brain, and can you imagine what individual human beings or small groups of individual human beings, how far their technology would have advanced? As a matter of fact, there's all kinds of other things. I mean, 
if we didn't cooperate and work together, uh, we, we couldn't have used these capabilities to create and do what we have. But and we, we couldn't have come to the place of dominance. We are the dominant species on this planet, unfortunately for us and for the rest of the planet. But nevertheless, it's true. And this is how it came about. But it didn't come about only because of that. It came about because we work together and we support each other. And there were evolutionary forces that forced that to happen. Um, we have a, an enormous period of time after we're born where we're totally incapable of taking care of ourselves. Yet we intuitively and instinctively, well, let's translate that, there's a whole part of our mind that makes sure, and there's a whole part of our brain that has evolved so that we have that part of our mind that makes sure that we care for the young. We not only care for the young, we care for the old. Now you can see that caring for the young is beneficial, right? Because then they can take care of us when we get old. But then the question is, why would they bother? Because old people aren't any use, but they're a lot of trouble to take care of, but we do it anyway. Another thing. There is... Tell me another organism you know of that spends so much of its life in states of sickness and survives with the degree of injury that human beings do. You have dogs and cats. You know, do they get flus and colds and every year? Do they get infections every time they get bit or cut or scraped? Or... But we do. I'm not sure why that's the case, but I'm really sure of one thing, that we would not survive if we didn't take care of each other. And why do we do that? Well, you can come up with some nice left-brain, pro-capitalist, pro-selfish uh, uh, explanations that cover it to a certain degree, but we go way beyond what can be explained by that. It's almost as if part of us knows that we're all one. It's as if part of us is already awakened. It's as if we have a Buddha nature that possesses all of this wisdom, but it's so deeply buried under this powerful, powerful left-brain view of the world and reality that we actually have to work to bring it out. So this puts attention and awareness in a totally new context, doesn't it? When you are taming attention and when you are developing powerful awareness and particularly introspective metacognitive introspective awareness that's capable of seeing the universe within as it really is and its relationship to the universe outside of itself, 
you're developing that part of your mind that sees and understands interconnectedness and interdependence and operates from that place. You're moving closer to being an awakened being, aren't you? Through developing awareness. And what does it mean to be an awakened being? Well, you still are capable of seeing yourself as separate. The only difference is you know it's not true and you only do it when it's necessary. When it comes time to sort your laundry from somebody else's, you know, you take it all out of the washing machine, you can do the I, me, mine thing, which is really great. Life flows much more smoothly that way, right? The, uh, the underwear you take home actually fit you. It's always there, but we no longer believe in it to the extent that it becomes the source of our craving and our suffering, right? It allows us, when, when we dwell in a place of seeing the wholeness and interconnectedness of everything, we're not dependent upon our own temporary happierness when we get something we want. All of the happiness in the world becomes ours. Of the Brahma-viharas, that is what's called sympathetic joy. That is something that when you when you relieve the suppression of the right brain by the left brain, and you begin to dwell in the place of, of a perception of things more as they really are, it also gives you access to a tremendous amount of pleasure and happiness. And in the process, you discovered along the way that both suffering and joy were products of your own mind. In the samatha practice, you find joy arises. It has absolutely nothing to do with anything outside of yourself. You find happiness that comes entirely... You find that happiness is just another one of those mental constructs. And not only that, you learn how to turn the tap on and off. You learn how to turn off the suffering tap and turn on the happiness tap. We do that in the jhana practice as well. The first jhana is characterized by attention plus joy and happiness. We get rid of attention when we move into the second jhana and we have joy and happiness. Joy is a mental state that produces happiness. Joy is a mental state that biases our perception towards the positive, right? And the result is happiness. We move into the third jhana and we've just got the happiness. We don't even need to create a mental state that perceives things in a particular way in order to have happiness. 
we discover that the mind can create the happiness on its own. And then the fourth jhana, we, we find that there's something even more sublime than that. And that is equanimity. So happiness, unhappiness flows right through us. So these practices, they're not only leading us towards awakening, they are awakening us. And what's happening inside our minds is that this one nature that really has the characteristics that we attribute to an awakened mind or a Buddha, this aspect of our nature is being developed, it's being enhanced. And this other aspect of our nature, which is so powerfully useful, except that when it gets in control, it makes us miserable and, it make, and we create misery for a lot of other people, it gets tamed. It remains there. We have all of the utility of it. But it's no longer in charge. And as a result, we become much happier. Those around us become much happier. And if it happened with enough of us, the whole world would become a better place. We might stand a chance to solve some of the major problems that we've created for ourselves that we face today. (coughs) So I'm suggesting to you, really, that there is a uh, neurophysiological basis for awakening. that what's happened to you is you came into this world and you became strongly acculturated so that uh, many of the left uh, right brain functions became minimized due to inhibition from the left hemisphere. And that the left hemisphere became dominant. This became reinforced throughout your life and you became trained to do and to think and feel in this way. Uh, One thing I didn't mention was language and symbolic thinking. Um, Language is a kind of very powerful kind of symbolic thinking. Mental imagery is another kind of symbolic thinking. Um, Somatosensory or or somesthetic uh, mental experiences, in- internally generated somesthetic experiences are another kind of symbolic thinking. Just as an image or a word, uh, a somesthetic feeling that's generated in your mind condenses a huge amount of information into something that is a symbol that is not the thing in itself. And um, symbolic thinking is characteristic of the left hemisphere. After all, that's where the speech centers are located, right? And that's where we do arithmetic. Actually, we do mathematics in the right brain, but we do arithmetics in the left brain. Because mathematics, I don't know how many of you are familiar with mathematics as opposed to arithmetic, but mathematics requires, it requires the larger perspective in which the, the sequential uh, analytical process can take place. Um, well, you've all learned algebra, right? So you've got the big picture, and then you do the arithmetic inside the big picture. 
But if you didn't have the big picture, you'd never know how to solve the problem, right? The first time you were confronted with a quadratic equation in high school, you know, you could beat your brains to pieces, but then when you were given the ability to see the big picture, then you could manipulate the pieces inside that and solve the problems, and next you learn calculus, and so on and so forth. So, what we are learning to do when we meditate is to bring this part of our nature forward and to tame this other part of our nature. Neurologically, what we're doing is causing a reorganization and rewiring of the brain so there's a lot less inhibition of right brain functions and they come to dominate more our daily perceptions of reality in ourselves. Um, When you open your eyes in the morning, rather than seeing a world that consists of separate things that are either desirable or undesirable and that you have to struggle uh, to obtain or to avoid and so on and so forth, you open your eyes into a world of wholeness and uh, of happiness and of potential happiness. And you can put your other faculties together, uh, put to work to reduce the suffering that you see around you and other people and the pain that's in the world that doesn't need to be there. And that's what it means to be a wise and compassionate awakened being. That's what it means to bring your Buddha nature forward. So. There you go. That's what my next book is about. You know, this is all secular too, I'll point out to you. Um, I mean, after all, truth doesn't belong to any particular system of thought or philosophy or religion. And what we're talking about here is, is truth. We're talking about a greater approximation to an ultimate truth that's taking place. And none of the things that the Buddha taught, that the Buddha really taught, um, need to be understood from the point of view of religion. The Buddha Dharma became religion, and a lot of good things came from that, and it probably wouldn't have preserved and been preserved and lasted as long as it did. Remember, the Buddha himself predicted it wouldn't last very long. But the Buddha did not create a religion out of it. People created religion out of it afterwards, and now it persists, right? Created many different religions out of it, the Buddha Dharma. But we have this Buddha Dharma. And the the working title for my next book is Contemporary Dharma. Um, Oh, I can't remember. What's the subtitle? A blueprint, a blueprint for the salvation of humanity, right? And the word humanity has two meanings, as in the human species and also uh, as in humanitarian behavior, it's our humanness, our humanity. And that all of that right brain stuff out of which loving kindness and compassion and sympathetic joy come, that's our humanity. That's our true humanity. The left brain stuff is like 
computers, like machines. It's, you know, and it's really good. It's great. It's, it's a great tool. But our humanity dwells in the right hemisphere functions. And so um, what I'm talking to you about is a dharma that's, that's naturalized. In other words, you strip out all the supernatural components because they don't really add anything anyway. They don't help. They just create problems. So it's modernized and it's brought into a way of understanding that and a language that everyone out there on the street is capable of understanding. And if enough people understand it and if it's applied through the methods that accompany it, then the world will change. And perhaps it will change in time for us to um, survive as a species. Although I think we'll probably survive as a species anyway. But that doesn't necessarily mean that we'll, we'll preserve all of the wonderful things that uh, our culture has developed. Or that we will survive as, uh, as beings that are, have, have our right and left hemispheres functioning in, in a more appropriate balance before. Anybody want to comment? Yes. Is the Darwinism sort of just the way it is from, you know, this is how we evolve, as you're saying, we're going to evolve into causes and conditions. it's, It's a kind of Darwinism that we can trace all the way back to the Big Bang. Yes, that's how it, that's how it seems. Mm-hmm. That's how I'm uh, inter- That's the mental construct that I'm, and I appreciate the mental constructs that you're putting out there yeah. as well, and uh, very organizational. It's wonderful, and as long as we're in a human body, the awakening I would think comes and goes. You can't stay in a human body and have absolute awakening. The process comes and goes. And on a personal note, Mm -hmm. my dad Mm -hmm. uh, was a lifetime meditator and got ALS. And I watched him not suffer with it, literally Mm -hmm. not suffer and pass his body. And my mother, who was not a meditator, suffered all the time with it as he was going. So uh, can you have a human body and be fully awakened 24-7? Well, you, you, yes, I think that that is possible. I think that, uh, you see, the, the Buddha spoke of there being uh, four levels and, and subsequently uh, in a further elaboration in the Mahayana they speak of, of 10 or 12 or 16 uh, um, bhumis. But um, there are degrees of awakening and one of the things about these degrees of awakening is the completeness of your awakening in the moment and the and the persistence of that awakening through a variety of different circumstances that come and go and that is overtly expressed in in the uh, reference to the stream enter as a the seven times returner um but i think um as the process continues the kind of awakening that a stream enterer experiences can be a permanent part 
of, of the life of somebody who is, uh, say, a non-re- non-returner, third path. Okay? That, that, in other words, in the worst situation that um, reveals the greatest um, gaps in their awakening, that they're still not going to fall below the level of the, the, the stream entering. Or, and, and this is what, in my experience and what I've seen with other people, is that there is a kind of movement that takes place. And you may not be, you know, a, a person may not be in our hut 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year for the rest of their life. They may move back and forth between third path and fourth path and sometimes drop down to second path. Somebody that's at third path may move back and forth between third and second path and sometimes drop down to to first path. And somebody at second path tends to, to vacillate between the two. And somebody at first path will have those occasional episodes where they drop fully back into samsara but they won't last long. So, but I, but in that sense, but the thing is that what, what I've discovered is that, that the four path description is an oversimplification, right? It's an intentional oversimplification because once you get that far, you don't need somebody telling you how much further there is to go. I don't think there's an end, but However far you get along, there's a limit to how much you'll fall back in the worst of circumstances. Does that answer your question? No. Thank no. you. No. <laughs> Thank you. Okay. There is no end to my question. Thank you. Okay. I, I, I can't say who to... Eeny, meeny, miny. Okay. Here's the gentleman over here I, in blue shirt. Let's give him... Thank you. The the notion of self um, actually uh, intrigues me because I've I've always thought of self as a, if we talk about it in a neurological process, is some kind of nexus that uh, relates different sensory inputs to the same place. And the example I, I uh, give is if you go outside now uh, or at some time and you you feel you are cold, mm-hmm. so you button up your jacket and you cross mm-hmm. the street to the sunny side of the, mm-hmm. the street and now you feel warmer. And that conjoining of all of those inputs uh, is a sense of self. In other words, people who have a damage, I'm talking conventional psychology, people who have a damaged sense of self, say they're sitting at a table and there's a glass of water in front of them and they're talking and at some point like you're doing, picking up the the tea uh, and you say, why did you drink the tea? And you would say, well, I, I feel a little thirsty or my throat needs to be bathed after all this talk. Yeah, we tell a story, right? Yeah, we tell a story in which the self is one of the role. Somebody who has a damaged sense of self, um, 
let's say, from a brain injury. And, and uh, ironically, particularly the area in the, in the frontal mm -hmm. lobe, yeah. uh, in the prefrontal uh, okay. lobe, is the place where if you're damaged there. Then you ask them, uh, why did you uh, drink the water? And you say, it was there. Mm -hmm. That was their answer. The, the self is, mm -hmm. is, no, uh, is, is not present in the answer. Mm -hmm. Now, my question is, so I presume that at some level, this kind of organizing nexus is necessary to have a coherent persistence in the world. I mean, yeah. we, we don't fall apart. If we no longer uh, cling to the notion of self, what happens to the conventional sense of self how do we maintain a coherent uh, control over, and I realize when I say control, um, not in a control freak mm -hmm. way, but how do we get up and put on our jacket, for example? Yeah. Um, yeah. What happens there? Okay. Yeah. Well, the, as, as a mental con construct, uh, the, the self exists for a reason. It's, it's, it's incredibly utilitarian. And as a matter of fact, um, the origins of the self, you know, go back long before there were minds. When the first cell was formed in the primordial seas, the membrane that created, uh, you know, the, the, the uh, contents of that membrane of that first cell had a different composition than the ocean around it and the membrane served to maintain that so that membrane was really the origin of the self and um, the creation of the idea of self and the sense of self in the human mind and in the mind of, uh, of animals and so forth is it's a, a necessary functional thing um, when we, what, you, you don't lose the ability to, uh, perceive that, uh, you know, I, as necessary, you can generate the concept of self, but it becomes completely transparent. Now, there's, there's, there's really two different aspects to the self. And, for me to answer the question in a way that's going to be really clear. When we say self, we mean one or the other, but usually both of these things. One is the conceptual self, or I would call it the ego self. Um, you can get a sense of the flavor of that if I told you to sit down with a piece of paper and tell me who you are. You know, uh, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm a father, I'm a husband, I'm a scientist, I'm a this, I'm a that. I like this, I don't like that. And we create, um, we create that self. It's more complex than that. Um, that self is a persona, and we're a different, the, the ego self that we create gets recreated in different forms in different situations. When you're when you're uh, at home with your children or your grandchildren, there's one self that's present. When you're dealing with uh, when you're dealing with a used car salesman, there's a different self that's present. We put on different 
itself. And these are all very obviously uh, mental constructs, although we believe in them. And for most people, they don't realize that they've taken off one persona and put on a next when they stop playing with their grandchildren and go to buy a used car. They don't even realize that. So it's a step forward just to realize that you're doing that. So there's this, this conceptual self that's created that is incredibly functional. And uh, like I say, it's, it, it's the one that allows you to, you can empty the dryer and keep your socks and underwear separate from somebody else's, right? The other aspect of self is this inherent sense of being a separate entity. And that's something quite different. That's not conceptual. It's non-conceptual. I mean, you, you can look at it, you can examine it, you can explore it. And what you find is it's just a, a, a sense. It's, it's a feeling and it underlines everything. Okay. So the first thing that happens, this is what defines a, a stream enterer really, is that they have had an experience that has shown them that even this inherent sense of self is an illusion. And then it allows them to have to see their ego construct for what it is from that point on. Because there's no longer this conflation of the inherent sense of being a separate self with the ego self. So the stream entrant, for the stream entrant, the, the ego self continues to exist. And, um, but she no longer believes in it. And uh, when it starts to, when at the attachment to it starts to uh, get out of line and misbehave, uh, she can easily recognize that happening and, and correct for it, right? But there is no change in that inherent sense of being a separate self. And so the stream entrant is still filled with craving and that craving will always be there as long as there is this deep gut level, intuitive, uh, preconceptual kind of feeling that I am a separate self, there is going to be craving and there's going to be suffering. Um, the next two paths, the second path has to do with recognizing uh, the, the presence of craving, uh, realizing that uh, uh, in a much deeper way than it was originally done, um, you know, you could consider this a further ripening and maturation of insight, realizing that craving is uh, the source of the, craving is the enemy. This is what I really have to work on. And that knowledge greatly diminishes the power of craving over the person. But they still have this inherent sense of self. And uh, third path, they've overcome craving for things of the sense realm. They're no longer driven by that. But because they still have the inherent sense of self, they're still craving for being and, and non-being. And this is essentially 
what defines the, the third path. You've overcome craving for things of the sense realm, but you're still, you still have this inherent sense of self. The arhat loses the inherent sense of self. There's no different than the stream enterer in being able to generate uh, an uh, ego construct as necessary, but without ever having the slightest delusion that it is uh, that it is anything other than a useful construct. So it's essentially an effective kind of role playing. Where does that inherent sense of self come from? Well, that had to be there in in organisms that were still too primitive to form a, an ego self. Uh, it's how they, uh, it, it, it was a mechanism that uh, allows them to, to survive and to uh, reproduce, uh, to perpetuate the cycle of birth and suffering and death. But, um, but that is that is something that can be overcome as well. So, now what you're talking about is certain brain lesions can interfere with a person being able to um, generate a useful concept of self. And there's, you know, depersonalization uh, is, uh, can be a, a serious disorder. Um, this, but when you look at brain lesions, you don't don't make the mistake of thinking that because a lesion in a particular area makes it impossible for a person to uh, function normally in terms of the self. Therefore, that's the area where the self is generated. What it what it means is more likely that the sense of self is being generated over a diverse set of networks, but you've knocked out a key piece of the communication equipment, and so now it's not able to manifest in the normal way. That's a very... That last piece is very... uh, a real insight. I think perhaps, you know, it's like memory. And say, oh yeah. well, it's a, you know, it's obviously the hippocampus, and yet yeah. memory is scattered everywhere. It's everywhere, That's and right. I think that this point about self—I mean, we presume mm-hmm. that it's going to be one place. What I'm concerned, you know, so it may be distributed, uh, but what I was just concerned was how do you maintain coherency when you don't have a notion of self? And what you're saying is sort of it's 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 metacognition. You're look, you're, the ego is now mm-hmm. just looked at from afar as that's Something right. that comes and goes as necessary. Yeah. And you generate it when you need it, and exactly. it's not there when you don't need it. It's, you turn it on and off like a, like a light switch. The same thing with, um, you know, I, was, I started talking about language and, and symbolic thought. I didn't really carry that thought through. Uh, in, but uh, what characterizes the typical, very left-brain-dominated human being, which includes the vast majority of human beings on the planet, is that there's a continual process of symbolic thought, most often in the terms of self-talk. The, the left, and, and we talk about, you know, when somebody is not engaged in a task and is not concentrated on that task, um, the, we see that this inner self-talk in, ends up 
just being uh, all this self-referential uh, rehashing of whatever it is that's going on in your life. And this is one of the things you discover in meditation, right? Um, the awakened mind can drop all that symbolic processing, dwell in a place of quiet. It doesn't, it doesn't, all that self-talk stops and all that self-oriented rehashing of things stops. But it can be, it can be implemented at any time that it's necessary and useful. And that's what happens is that, uh, you know, uh, an awakened mind can slip, turn that process on, slip into that mode, become self-referential, solve personal problems, make personal decisions. Um, actually, it's an interesting thing. Very often after people achieve uh, certain levels of awakening, there's a period of time that they can't do that. There's a period of time where they're kind of rudderless and uh, direction, you know, or, or just stalled in the water. But then they learn to re-implement those, those same faculties. That, that may be because they've lost their old ego self and, and uh, now are, are rudderless, as you say. Yeah, they're, they're temporarily rudderless. It's temporary, yeah. but, but all the equipment's still there. It's all intact. And um, so they just learn to, learn to use it again. And, and they learn to use it in a much healthier way. And it's no longer in control. They are predominantly in a place of non-symbolic experiencing, and they can, but they can shift into the symbolic mode at any time that it's necessary and useful. So I think that this is a process which is necessary to achieve modern dharma. Yes, exactly. I did. It is now two o'clock exactly. So the formal uh, is over with. But as Cliff said, I'm happy to continue this conversation with those of you who are interested. And Cliff has more things to say before we continue with that. I want to thank everyone.